The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. How are you doing? Great, Father. Great to be here. Good to see you. Absolutely. Father, we have uh, <clears throat> multiple topics for tonight, but uh, one of the big ones is uh, on the question of baptism. Uh, we have several uh, different emails regarding this topic, um, some of them specifically dealing with baptism of desire. Um, so, Father, just uh, to jump in and read through one of the emails here from one of our great viewers, he asks uh, if Father Jenkins could specify more precisely for us what is necessary to receive the baptism of desire. Is it enough simply to have the explicit intention to receive the sacrament of baptism, or must an act of perfect contrition or an act of pure charity also accompany it? Well, the Catechism of the Council of Trent says uh, very clearly that it has to do with the explicit intention to receive the baptism, uh, the, the sacrament of baptism, um, and um, to have true contrition for one's sins. Um, so if you look at the um, Catechism of the Council of Trent with regard to the baptism of adults, the Catechism which was issued under St. Pius V himself, the very first year of his pontificate in 1566, uh, says very clearly that the Church is in not in a hurry to baptize adults who wish to convert because the Church has the conviction that uh, if anything should prevent that, well, essentially catechumen is what we're talking about here, uh, from actually receiving the sacrament of baptism, the sacramental waters of baptism, then the intention to receive it and the uh, true contrition for sin would avail that soul of both uh, uh, justification and grace from God. So... Um, the uh, when the question and it gets into uh, you know what 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 intention is necessary to have you know uh, what the liberals have done is expand and expand and expand the intention to the point where it becomes almost meaningless you know uh, they've introduced the idea of implicit intentions and as we saw in my Catholic faith right. Uh, Bishop Morrow, even from the, well, we looked at the 19, uh, the, looked early editions, the early editions of, the, of my Catholic faith, and not only did it, it allow for an implicit, an implicit intention, which was, I'd say, very implicit indeed, right, um, and, but also even stated, um, uh, at least obliquely, that one could be saved outside the church, and that's not that's not Catholic. Right. That would actually be heretical. You know? um, if it were not, if it, if it were just a bald faced statement, and uh, you know, we're 
pertinacious. Um, I, it's difficult for me to believe that that's exactly what he meant, but um, anyway, one can actually look that up and see it for himself in, in my Catholic faith. Uh, I am not satisfied personally with the way he expressed that. Uh, not in the later edition, not even in the early edition. Um, because I don't think it's, uh, it clearly states the Catholic faith with regard to the need uh, for the sacrament of baptism. Mm -hmm. But uh, the Catechism of the Council of Trent does explicitly state that an, an explicit intention to receive the sacrament um, is necessary for baptism of desire. Um, now, the, the Catechism did not limit it to that, I must admit. Okay? It didn't say only that could qualify. Right? But it, in fact, is it said that uh, it's the only intention that it that it mentioned that it stated as qualifying. Okay, um, so once you get into that implicit desire, um, you get into the so many uh, this vast range of how implicit can it be? You know. I understand that uh, Pope Pius IX and Pope Pius XII themselves expanded upon that a bit, or expounded upon that, and expounding upon it, they expanded it a bit. Um, and Pope Pius IX talked about invincible ignorance. Um, but of course, invincible ignorance does not actually save anyone. We know that, right? Uh, the fact is, um, one one who is invincibly ignorant of the sacrament of baptism um, does not necessarily have the um, implicit desire to receive it, right? <laughs> so, uh, uh, and supposedly St. Pius, Pius XII introduced the idea of the implicit desire. Um, perhaps in Mr. G. Corporis Christi or in... Um, I don't know. I'd have to check that out. Um, but again, uh, I, I find it hard to imagine that it's as general and as vague uh, as it is represented in my Catholic faith by Bishop Morrow. It's so-called implicit desire of baptism. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very slippery slope we have to be very careful of. So, Father, can you give any examples? Is there any possible situation where someone with any kind of implicit desire for baptism could be could could receive the uh, baptism of the? Well, the story what we're told is that if someone uh, you know wants to do God's will entirely and uh, is so completely dedicated to serving the will of God with a great love for God that. Um, if he doesn't know that God mandated baptism, um, that uh, his uh, not only his general will to uh, you know be in accord, live in accord with God's desires, uh, God's wishes, but his very specific intention to do God's will in all things uh, would, we're told, uh, qualify as that implicit desire for baptism. But as I've mentioned before, I mean, we're talking essentially about a perfect love for God here. We're talking about someone who loves God, uh, well, certainly love, loves God more than any created being, including himself, that that soul would be totally faithful to God, never commit 
mortal sin. Um, um, but, um, you know, again, um, this would obviously have to be done by an extraordinary grace of God. But the example that I've given has to, in the past has to do with faith, hope, and charity. The supernatural virtues of faith, hope, and charity. God could give to an aborigine in the outback, in Australia, uh, the grace of faith, and the individual could accept that grace of faith, to believe whatever God reveals. And God could follow that up. If the first grace was cooperated, fully cooperated with, God could give the grace of hope, and the individual could accept it. In other words, the graces that God is giving would be what we call efficacious graces that overcome all obstacles, right? And uh, that the person then could ha have the supernatural virtue of faith and the supernatural virtue of hope, and then God could offer and the individual could receive, if God made it the efficacious grace of charity, and the grace to love God perfectly. Could God give those graces? Of course God could give those graces. Could the individual receive Yes, God could make it that way, so the individual receives those graces. And if there was a perfect act of love for God, then we know, as Catholics, that that, um, that uh, obtains remission of all sin. The uh, very nature of uh, the grace of charity, perfect, perfect uh, charity, perfect love for God. Could God do that? Yes, he could. Does he do that? I don't know. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, if we're talking about um, the forgiveness of mortal sin, uh, one has to uh, be give, forgiven mortal sin in one of two ways, by a perfect act of love for God, which inspires perfect contrition, or through the sacrament of penance in which the merits of Jesus Christ are applied to the soul and supply what is lacking in the soul in terms of love for God and repentance, to obtain forgiveness of mortal sin. And uh, if one is not baptized, they cannot validly receive the sacrament of penance. Um, so it would seem that the only way for such a soul to save his soul, according to other principles of the church, would be if he made a perfect act of contrition. But he goes anything less would not be sufficient to forgive mortal sin. Um, you know, Father Feeney himself was very confused about all this. If you read the, the article in the, the old Catholic Encyclopedia, you find it somewhat, somewhat instructive. Uh, Father Feeney criticized this because he said it was written by a Jesuit. Of course, he was a Jesuit himself, right? So, um, and uh, this is under the heading of Baptism of Desire. Uh, the old Catholic Encyclopedia says, uh, the Baptism of Desire, Baptismus Flaminis, uh, is a perfect contrition of heart, and every act of perfect charity or pure love of God, which contains, at least implicitly, a desire votum of baptism. The Latin word flamen is used because flamen is a name for the Holy Ghost, whose special office is, it is to move the heart to love God and to conceive penitence for sin. So the way this, uh, this article is written, it presupposes a desire of, of, uh, for baptism which is born of a perfect contrition of heart and uh, out of perfect charity for God. Okay? Um, 
But he says even if there is an implicit desire for baptism, that that would be efficacious because of the perfect contrition for sin out of a perfect love for God. Well, I, I guess if he wants to use the word implicit that way, um, this in, involves someone who has a perfect love for God, uh, which means he must have the supernatural virtue of charity, uh, he must have the vir supernatural virtue of hope, and he must have the supernatural virtue of faith. It doesn't say it here, but it, that presupposes it. And, um, and But the person doesn't know about baptism. So it, in a sense, is raising that very question that I just raised, could this be done, right? Uh, for someone who's so completely ignorant of the faith, he doesn't even know about baptism. Um, but it says, the baptism of the Holy Ghost is a term employed in the third century by the anonymous author of the book, De Rebaptismate. The efficacy of this baptism of desire to supply the place of the baptism of water as to its principal effect, is proved from the words of Christ, after he had declared the necessity of baptism in St. John chapter 3, he promised justifying grace for acts of charity or perfect contrition in St. John chapter 14. He that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Now, again, this seems to be along the lines of what St. Augustine wrote in the City of God. And again, quote, If anyone love me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and will make our abode with him. Since these texts declare that justifying grace is bestowed on account of acts of perfect charity or contrition, it is evident that these acts supply the place of baptism as to its principal effect, the remission of sins. This doctrine is set forth clearly by the Council of Trent in the 14th session, chapter 4. The Council teaches that contrition is sometimes perfected by charity and reconciles men to God before the sacrament of penance is received. In the fourth chapter of the 6th session, in speaking of the necessity of baptism, it says that men cannot obtain original justice except by the washing of regeneration or its desire. Boto is what it's saying. The same doctrine is taught by Pope Innocent III, and the contrary propositions are condemned by Pope Pius V and Gregory XII in prescribing the 31st and 33rd propositions of Bayus. Bayus was a heretic. Um, we have already alluded to the funeral oration pronounced by St. Ambrose over the Emperor Valentinian II, a catechumen. The doctrine of the baptism of desire is here clearly set forth. St. Ambrose asks, did he not obtain the grace which he desired? Did he not obtain what he asked for? Certainly he obtained it because he asked for it. So this has to do again with a catechumen who has an explicit desire for the, the uh, sacrament of baptism, and is even then preparing to receive it, okay? Again, the Catechism of the Council of Trent would address that particular case. So, uh, I, and there's just a little bit more to read in the article. As I mentioned, that um, um, one, one can go and, and read the rest of the article. It's not much longer. 
But one gets the gener general gist of the article there, that perfect love for God inspires a perfect contrition for sin, which the Church has always said obtains the forgiveness of sins, all sins. Okay? But there's really no, no dispute about that, in the, for Catholics anyway. There's no dispute about that for Catholics. Uh, I found it very interesting to look at the, the book of Father Leonard Feeney, The Bread of Life, just Bread of Life. It's actually a series of lectures of his um, that he gave uh, sometime in the 1930s, I believe, and he... This is, uh, unfortunately, a very confused and confusing book. If you look at what he wrote here, you see, I won't, again, read a great deal of it, but he does lapse into catechism question and answer mode a couple of times here, and he's asking himself these questions. On page 120, he starts out, what does baptism of desire mean? And he answers, it means the belief in the necessity of baptism of water for salvation and a full intent to receive it. So you see, he talks about a baptism of desire being essentially that, belief in the necessity of baptism water and the intent to receive it. Okay? Then he asks, can baptism of desire save you? And he answers, never. And he asks, could baptism of desire save you if you really believed it could? He answers, it could not. Well, this is contrary to what the Council of Trent actually said, right? According to the very definition of baptism of desire that he himself gives, this is point blank, directly contradictory to the Catechism of the Council of Trent, published in 1566 by St. Pius V himself, on the baptism of adults. And he asks, could it possibly suffice for you to pass into a state of justification? He says, it could. Interesting enough, your sins are forgiven. If you got into the state of justification with the aid of baptism of desire, and then failed to receive baptism of desire, could you be saved? He answers, never. He's not addressing the case at all of someone who was not baptized with water through no fault of his own, he intended to receive it. Okay, he says, never. In other words, under no circumstances, justified or not. Okay? So, he seems to uh, somehow draw a line between justification and sanctification. The Catholic Church herself recognizes the work of Christ in the soul, justifying us of sin, uh, is actually also bringing us into the state of sanctification. But Father Feeney breaks the two of them apart, and distinguishes these two, so you can be justified from sin, <coughs> not be sanctified by grace. Okay? And evidently that's why he said you can be justified by the, but this bap the desire, the explicit desire for baptism. But unless you actually uh, survive to be baptized with that water of baptism, you cannot be saved. So, uh, he actually he refers to this in, in page 123 in the book. Suppose one of these catechisms, catechumens dies before being baptized. That is where the seminary professor runs out of answers and has to make up confused ones. With the assistance of the Baltimore Catechism, the Catholic Encyclopedia, and a few articles by some hitherto 
brilliant unknowns in the American Ecclesiastical Review. The paragraph from the Encyclopedia, uh, Catholic Encyclopedia, which I just read, by the way, on the allowability of baptism of desire is one of the most sneaky pieces of surreptitious theology ever placed in print. And he goes on to criticize that. And he criticizes the mentioning of St. Ambrose. Um, and uh, he says, any simple and loving Catholic would understand St. Ambrose to have meant by this comfort that he hoped Valentinian had been baptized by somebody, even though he, St. Ambrose, did not know who it was, and even though there was no official record of it. Because if the grace Valentinian desired was something other than baptism of water, why call him a catechumen? Now, again, Father Fini gets really murky in his thinking here. When he, he's interpreting, or twisting, I'd say, the words of St. Ambrose, just when St. Ambrose says, did he not get what he desired? Well, St. Ambrose is clearly referring to the grace of justification from sin and sanctifying grace. Father Feeney is insisting that what Ambrose means, St. Ambrose means is, did he not get what he desired, meaning baptism. Of course, he must have been baptized. That's what he desired. That's what St. Ambrose means. St. Ambrose hoping that, that he really got himself baptized somehow before he died, without anybody knowing about it, maybe without even himself knowing about it, because Valentinian and St. Ambrose both regarded him as a catechumen, not yet baptized, right? So, uh, it's, it's a strange way of thinking on Father Fini's part, and I'd say it really does violence, certainly, to the meaning of the words here. Um, and again, I mean, you know, this is a horse that's been beaten to death many times, I'm afraid. But I think the convoluted thinking of Father Fini helps to explain why he was summoned to Rome to explain his thinking, because his thinking was very mixed up. On page 137, he actually goes through the same process of questions and answers, okay? And again, I think it's very revealing of his thoughtful, his thought process here, which is very, very, well, uh, troubling and convoluted. He says on page 137, Can anyone now be saved without baptism of water? Answer, no one can be saved without baptism of water. Question. Are the souls of those who die in the state of justification saved if they have not received baptism of water? Answer, no, they are not saved. So you see this is picking up where he kind of left off before. And baptism of desire can justify you from sin, but you, you won't be saved anyway. And so he picks up there. So someone asks here, well, actually Father Feeney is asking himself, where do these souls go if they die in the state of justification but have not received baptism of water? Answer, I do not know. Question, do they go to hell? Answer, no. Question, do they go to heaven? Answer, no. Question, are there any such souls? Answer, I do not know, neither do you. Question, what are we to say to those who believe there are such souls? Answer, we must say to them that they are making reason prevail over faith and the laws of probability over the providence of God. But actually, it's, it's Father Feeney who's doing that. He's the one who's actually guilty of that. First of all, you know, what he's implying is that there's another state, ultimately, where his soul winds up. 
that is not held in, and not hell. Not purgatory, right? That doesn't even interfactor in anywhere. He calls limbo as part of hell, as the creed itself does, right? Hell without the punishment of the fire. So he seems to be postulating a hitherto unknown state of the soul, certainly unknown to Catholicism. And as I say, this, this man is um, really mixed up, and he's mixing people up by what he's saying here, that they're justified not, but not sanctified, and they, if they die, they don't go to hell, and no, they don't go to heaven. And he doesn't know where they go. He has no idea where they go, and nobody does. Nobody knows where they go. This is what he's saying. And, uh, you know, he's, he's a very mixed up, he's not talking at a, as a Catholic theologian here. But let me just continue and say what he says after that on page 137. May I pause here, he says, to declare that I think both with regard to the sacrament of baptism and the sacrament of penance, that the liberal theologians, when it suits them, are making perfect active love for God altogether too easy for a fallen nature like ours. I'm not going to think it as difficult for a Catholic who has fallen into mortal sin, but who through his faith remembers his holy communions, his blessed mother, his past sins, God's rich forgiveness in the sacraments to make an act of perfect love as for a catechumen who has not yet had the benefit of one of God's sanctifying sacraments. But the very... But the very fact that the church requires every mortal sin committed to be confessed, whether one is perfectly sorry for it or not, shows the church has a maternal suspicion of this perfect act of love for God, obtaining forgiveness apart from the sacrament of forgiveness instituted by Christ. So here he's calling into question the idea of the perfect act of love for God, the perfect contrition, having true uh, for, you know, power of remission of sins. And so this is, uh, you know, he's getting into murky waters because he's ha he has a knee-jerk reaction about the liberal, the liberal teaching, and he goes to the other extreme of their so liberalizing the baptism of desire as to make the desire basically unidentifiable, undetectable, and irrelevant almost, uh, and taking the position, as he does, that there's no such thing as a baptism of desire, period, that can actually avail you to justification and grace, as the Council of Trent says. So what he accuses the liberals of doing, he is doing in the other direction, okay? In a sense, he's as liberal as they are, because he's actually denying the, the stated words of the Church in the Catechism of the Council of Trent. Um, so, um, I don't know, I, he even says in another place, and I won't quote that, but he even says that even, even if somebody could be justified by the, uh, baptism of desire, he can't hold it. You know, two or three days, he's bound to commit a mortal sin. He's bound to sin again. And of course, um, you know, that in itself is allowing reason to prevail over, over grace, because obviously if God were to give the grace to someone uh, to desire the sacrament of baptism and uh, to repent of his sins and have, again, uh, justification from sin, if God could give that grace to someone, God could preserve that soul from mortal sin by grace as well. Mm -hmm. So I guess the point where you're reading the book, uh, the, these thoughts of Father Fiend, and you're, 
you wind up kind of scratching your head and you're wondering, boy, he's making all these suppositions. And then he's accusing his adversaries of making all the suppositions. And as I say, it's, it's no wonder that he was summoned to Rome to explain himself, but he refused to go because, as he explained it, I mean, the, uh, the cards were stacked against him. That is, you know, he was already said to be condemned. And again, I think that's the greatest condemnation there is against him that he wouldn't go because he was summoned to explain himself. And, um, and that was a great opportunity if he really believed that what he was saying was true. But, um, you know, when, when, when you read what he writes here, you, you, you get to be as confused as he was, mm -hmm. as confused as uh, those who picked up the, uh, the theme, you know, denying the existence of baptism of desire and baptism of blood, which were very uh, readily believed in by fathers of the church. Mm -hmm. Uh, what what the what those who deny a baptism of desire and baptism of blood now what they what they stand on actually is no salvation outside the church and when you when they they, they actually trick you into as though you're you're actually talking about and discussing the question of baptism of desire and baptism of blood the reality of these things the nature of these things the true Catholic teaching on these things and they immediately at some point switch tracks over to no salvation outside the church and try to make it sound as though that's what you're denying when you uphold the baptism of desire and baptism of blood. But of course, you're not denying that. Uh, again, the liberals make it sound that way, but it is, again, a, um, a, a logical uh, uh, trick uh, to try to paint you into the corner when all you're trying to do is express the real Catholic teaching on these, these subjects. So, in any case, um, Tom, uh, you know, I, I, but I, you know, if the question is, I, I see that that question is a little bit longer, then I better let you get back to it, right? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, Father, one of the things that, um, that we wanted to, to talk about was the, you know, you mentioned the act of uh, a perfect contrition or the perfect charity, which um, is obviously uh, something that would take a great grace. I mean, we talk of an act of perfect charity, perfect contrition, make one a, a saint. Well, um, all grace is great. But, Father, is Obviously, that, it's all supernatural. Would it, would it, would it not be much, uh, much more simple for, if we have someone who wants to do God's will, would it not much be much, much more simple to just, uh, for, for God to provide them with a means of receiving the sacrament of baptism? And thus, this whole question would, would be avoided. Um, I mean, anyone could administer the sacrament of baptism in case of necessity. It's a very, very simple, um, very simple process to go through to receive the sacrament of baptism. So why, if there was someone who, who desired baptism, why would God not just provide them a means to receive the actual sacrament of baptism? Well, the fact is, um, the, God does not have to do that. <laughs> he could inspire in the soul. Uh, I guess really the question that you're asking here, Tom, uh, has to do with why would he take Valentinian before he was baptized? Sure. Right? I mean, um, if you want to be simplify, really simplify it, yeah. why would God take a, a, a catechumen who has an explicit desire for baptism uh, and call him uh, for judgment before he's baptized? Yes. Now, I imagine maybe there would be an answer, well, maybe he desired baptism, but maybe he desired it unworthily, if he wasn't repentant, maybe, 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 maybe. Mm -hmm. 
But the fact is, when you have a person who is studying the faith and is learning the faith, um, professes belief, professes hope, professes charity and love for God to the point that he wants to be baptized, the fact is that God at times calls people like that to him before the water of baptism is poured. And um, the Phineite would say, well, if he, if he really desired the baptism as it were worthily, then God would send an angel to baptize him or have him somehow surreptitiously baptized, surreptitiously baptized. Um, but, you know, again, uh, that seems to be complicating matters as though someone would be, have to be clandestinely baptized so that God would then call him. But there's no record of it that he was ever a member of the church, he, so that, uh, according to them, he should be denied Catholic burial, and that's, again, contrary to the Catholic law, right? Um, so you can ask all kinds of questions about that. You know, why wouldn't God do it this way, or why wouldn't God do it that way? Uh, the answer is perhaps sometimes God does not always choose the simplest way. Mm -hmm. But that should not surprise us, because... Uh, he says his ways are not our ways, right? Mm -hmm. um, so sometimes the simplest way is not really necessary what manifests his glory and saves would save the most souls, as it were, right? Mm -hmm. Well, Father, here's a, um, here's a particular case that I wanted to, uh, to bring your attention from a viewer who says, when I left evangelicalism for Catholicism, the Novus Ordo priest accepted my old, quote, baptism, uh, despite the minister denying that baptism forgives sins. I later abandoned the Novus Ordo uh, religion for tr the traditional Catholic religion, where I learned this was invalid and was therefore properly baptized. Uh, had I died practicing traditional Catholicism, uh, falsely thinking that I was baptized, would that count as baptism of desire? If he uh, actually entered what he thought was the Catholic Church, right, intentionally, mm -hmm and uh, was denied Catholic baptism. And, uh, but that's what he sought. He really sought to be baptized, and he really was a catechumen. Then I, I think that would meet exactly the definition given by the Council of Trent, uh, that the Church would have confidence that uh, his explicit desire for the sacrament, valid sacrament of baptism, uh, and repentance for sin would avail him unto justification and grace, right? That's assuming he had an explicit desire for baptism and true repentance for sin. Now, I can see in that case somebody saying, but that was in the Novus Ordo. Uh, he, he wanted to join the Novus Ordo. He thought it was Catholic, but we know that really it is modernist, right? Uh, but he was mistaken, and... Uh, but the fact is, he did seek valid baptism. And he was told that the baptism he had was perfectly fine. Um, so he was put off by, by them, okay? It was not fine, by the way. Uh, not by any means, right? Um, and if the, there was an explicit statement by the minister that this does not accomplish the forgiveness of sins, then that would have a contrary intention to the church's intention. So I don't know how anyone can argue that that would have been a valid baptism. I would uh, absolutely baptize somebody after that. Um, but I do, I do think there is a, a, I mean, a, a likelihood 
Uh, only the church, I mean, ultimately in a case like that, you'd have to address that question of the church and the church's magisterium. A theologian could give you a, an opinion, but that's all that a theologian can give you, a mere opinion. So if he's asking for an opinion, I would say, well, it seems to me to meet the definition of the Council of Trent, um, of baptism of desire, as it is stated in the section on baptism of adults. So I would say my thought would be yes, but that doesn't really mean anything, <laughs> ultimately, other than a mere opinion. Um, of someone who, who thinks that that beats the definition, that's all. Okay. Uh, well, Father, another question about baptism that we had. Um, if I could just. By the way, I'm, I, I I congratulate the, the individual. Yeah, that's great. I'm so grateful that he did become traditional Catholic, and that there was a priest who told him the truth. And uh, the discrepancy between what the Novus Ordo told him and what the traditional told him that should tell him all the difference yeah. between. Uh, that the one is modernist and the other is truly Catholic. That's true. Uh, okay, well, for this next one, Father, uh, we've uh, we've mentioned multiple times on the program about uh, Paul VI with the new rite of baptism. He removed the uh, prayers of exorcism from the rite of mm -hmm. baptism. And uh, this this viewer says that um, if we had the example of uh, a Novus Ordo baptism that was found to be valid, in fact valid, um, how do we how do we remedy the fact that those prayers of exorcism uh, were not were not done were not administered in the in this sort of baptism even if it was valid the prayers of exorcism were not there how does one remedy that well the practice of the church is to supply the ceremonies that are missing I mean even if you had an emergency baptism done by a, a nurse in a hospital if a baby were in danger of death um, there would probably be a conditional baptism unless you could certify, you know, that it was in fact validly a valid baptism. But I think in any case it'd be, um, if there were any doubt, any, any true doubt, there'd be a conditional baptism, but all of the ceremonies would be, would be supplied. Even if a priest were to baptize a baby uh, and under emergency circumstances, or if a priest were to baptize an adult, let's say, uh, who was uh, severely injured in a, an automobile accident, or was having a heart attack, right? And uh, the priest were to administer the sacrament of baptism under those circumstances, he couldn't do so solemnly, he couldn't do with all the ceremonies. But if the person survived, baby or adult, there would be a baptismal ceremony which would supply all of the ceremonies that were lacking. And both Father Greenwell and I and other traditional priests have done that. Uh, if, we, if we are approached by someone who was baptized uh, under those circumstances, um, then we, we would supply the ceremonies of, uh, that, were, that were missing from the Novus Ordo, notably the, the prayers of exorcism. Okay, great. Uh, then a follow-up. Question, Father, in regards to Paul VI, this viewer asked if you could uh, provide any references as to when and where um, Paul VI said that he regretted this change of taking the prayers of exorcism out mm. of the new rite of baptism. Uh, when? I can tell you that I read about it uh, shortly, after, shortly after he uh, issued the new rite of baptism that he stated, and it was public because it was published. I read it in a, in a 
<laughs> in the whatever the media was at the time, um, to tell the truth, I mean, we're talking about 1972, 73. I read, would have read that. Probably I would have read that in 1973. And, uh, <coughs> um, excuse me. So, um, or it might, have, it might actually have been in 72, thinking back. But in any case, uh, it was a statement he made not long after uh, he issued the, the new rite of baptism. Where I read it, I couldn't tell you right now. Um, I'd like to think there's still a record of that. I think there are um, sources that do reference that, though. I'm not the only one, right? Um, in the, actually, in the months or, or years after the new rite of baptism came out, Paul VI did refer to that on one, more than one occasion and lamented the, the fact that those uh, prayers of exorcism uh, were not there. And, uh, in fact, there supposedly is a prayer but there, which they consider a prayer of exorcism in the New Rite, but it is not, right? It is not a command to the devil, to, uh, to an evil, any evil spirit, to depart from and to uh, leave, you know, unmolested this child or this person. So uh, even what they consider a prayer of exorcism simply is not, in traditional Catholic terms, a prayer of exorcism, which is a command to the Satan, basically be gone Satan. You know? um, but uh, because this uh, person asked, I mean, I, I'm going to research that and try to go back to it. But I think if, the, if they did, uh, it is with great reluctance that I direct anybody to search the internet, okay, it's because it is such a pit, okay. Um, but I'm sure if one were to search under Paul the Sixth for baptism, exorcism, prayers, um, uh, omission, elimination, regret, uh, I, I think one would come up with uh, something of an answer to that question that Paul VI himself did express his unhappiness that those prayers had been omitted. Yeah. All right. Well, Father, we had uh, a few other topics that we wanted to get to tonight, but I wanted to uh, leave just a few minutes to, um, first of all, wish you a blessed anniversary. Oh, well, thank it's you. The, uh, very kind of you. 43rd anniversary. 43rd anniversary of ordination. Any, uh, any reflections on these past 43 years, Father? Um, in 25 words or less, right? Yes. <laughs> 43 <laughs> words or less. <laughs> I, I just thank God. I thank God for having granted me this vocation to priesthood. As Bishop Mendez himself said when he was, had been ordained so many years, he said, uh, so, many, so many joyful years. You know, and uh, so it is. And uh, someone might say, well, did you celebrate your anniversary? And uh, the answer is, well, I, I did, by celebrating the Holy Mass. I mean, that's the greatest celebration there is, right? Um, but um, the, um, not only do I thank God for uh, giving me the, the call to the sacred priesthood, and having that call, uh, you know, consummated when Archbishop Lefebvre ordained me as a priest, but uh, I thank him for putting up with me all these 43 years. Um, living up to the demands of the priesthood is something that is superhuman. 
And no priest is superhuman, but for the grace that God gives him, of course. Uh, so he can act in a superhuman way. Uh, but, um, you know, we all, we all fail. We're like that servant who tries to do whatever is required of him. And then our Lord says, what a poor servant I am who does nothing more than what I've been asked. But how few there are in that category, and I can't place myself even in that category. So um, I just ask for prayers, uh, prayers for not so, even so much for me, although I need the prayers, but for those who might be victims of my own uh, human failings. I, uh, at every Mass, I always pray for benefactors and victims, right? benefactors who've done uh, good to me and victims to whom I did uh, less than good. I uh, failed somehow, and I ask God's mercy for them. Um, so, in any case, uh, but as I say, I, I, uh, I thank God for this vocation and pray that he will uh, stir the hearts of many young men to follow him, to the priesthood, to his priesthood. Because it is, after all, his priesthood. Right? We just are granted the... Uh, great benefit of being called to share in that priesthood. Mm -hmm. Well, Father, I wanted to uh, just personally thank you. Um, I've been a uh, beneficiary of your your priesthood over the not past. A, not a victim. Right? <laughs> yes, Father, absolutely not. Uh, over the past for three three decades now, um, I've attended many of your masses, served many of your masses, um, received sacraments from you multiple, many, many, many times. Um, so I just wanted to uh, personally thank you for that. And I know all of our, all of our viewers are uh, incredibly grateful for everything that you do as well. We, um, you, you don't even see all of them, Father, but we uh, receive many, many comments, many emails, um, many uh, just words in passing about uh, just, just wanting to express thanks to you, Father, for everything that you do. So. Well, Tom, thank you. I thank you, and I thank them, and I uh, just ask your prayers. And uh, could I make you a victim now? Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I ask is because last program we were, well, uh, a subject came up about the uh, the limbo infancy, the limbo mm -hmm. of the infants, as yes. I recall, right? Yes. And in some of the scripture studies, we raised that question. Yes. And some very kind soul has given me a very good translation from a biblical commentary, a scriptural commentary by uh, Cornelius Alapide. We've cited him before as a very, very good source for a scriptural commentary. And I thought people would find this kind of comforting because uh, we were reading in Saint Second uh, Epistle of St. Peter about the new heaven and the new earth. And the, the old earth would finally be destroyed by fire. But that uh, in the book of the Apocalypse, we read that there'll be a new earth, right? And so the question came up, well, is that where the souls of the infants, ones after the resurrection, right? When they are reunited with bodies, is that when the, the souls of those infants who died with no personal sin, but without the grace of baptism, um, is that where they, uh, they would reside, in this new earth, this perfect earth, like a new garden of Eden. And Cornelius Alapide actually addresses that very question. And I thought his answer was actually very, uh, very comforting, so I, 
I wanted to read that if sure. you yes, would put sure. up with me a little yes, bit sure. longer and endure this uh, yes. this injury. And he he cites from Second Peter chapter three, verse thirteen. Second Peter chapter three, verse thirteen. So this is the second epistle of Saint Peter that he would have written actually shortly before his death. And uh, Cornelius Elapide is referring to the phrase, and a new earth. And here he says, with new beauty, purity, and resplendent with glory, such that it will be glorified, as it were, with the saints whom it serves, and will be a delight to their eyes and minds. Now this is Paludanus, uh, one of the writers, the early writers of the church, who says he believes that this glory will extend to and pervade the limbo of the infants and will illumine their eyes and bodies after they have been resurrected, for otherwise they would be as the blind wandering eternally in darkness. Others, as St. Politi and Salmeron, as not saint, others as Politi, these are theologians and commentators, others as Politi and Salmeron, are of the opinion that these children will live in a terrestrial paradise on earth and therefore are to be perfected in their natural understanding such that they will surpass all the philosophers and will contemplate God in his creatures and will love and praise him and will even enjoy visitations and revelations from his angels. But they do err when they say that they will enjoy a natural blessedness. For since they are to be punished with the punishment of the condemned, that is, deprived of the beatific vision, although they did not have understanding, for which perfect they were created, and as St. Augustine teaches against Pelagius, they are rather to be called of the, of the damned than of the blessed, insofar as that they do not have the beatific vision. But that's the reason, according to Lapide, says they are at fault, because of a natural blessedness, as though they had some kind of a natural beatific vision, which he says is, could not, cannot be. That notwithstanding, it is probable that they will lead a comfortable life on earth, for the limbo of the infants will not receive the bodies which they will recover on the day of judgment, for there will easily be billions of children who throughout all the ages will have died in the state of original sin without baptism. Moreover, this many bodies, and I found this a little bit quaint, moreover, this many bodies could not be there naturally without grief and punishment of the senses, which the theologians in common say that children will not have, that they will not have grief, and that they will not have punishment of the senses, he says. So he says, after the resurrection, they will not be received back into the limbo of infants, he said. He says, because the darkness, close quarters, pressing in, squalor, straits, etc., would cause this, as though the limbo of the infants would be too crowded because of the number. I mean, they're there as souls now, so they do not have squalor, and they're not crowded. But after the resurrection with the bodies, now it'll get very crowded in the limbo, which I thought was kind of an interesting way of looking at it. 
So the argument was, well, of course, after the resurrection, they will not have to be all crowded back into limbo again. That's why God is creating the new earth for them, right? Kind of a new garden of Eden for them. So I thought it was rather, rather quaint. But anyway, he continues, rightly does Tobias say, what matter of joy shall be to me who sit in darkness and see not the light of heaven? Where, basing himself on St. Thomas, Duns Scotus, Marcilius, Duns Soto, uh, Dominic Soto, and other scholastics, he teaches that these children will appear in the general judgment, will escape the sentence of damnation, but are to be perfected in intellect, will, and other natural faculties. For there will be at that time a general renewal of all nature, so that they, happy and contented, will live harmoniously and amicably for all eternity, and will love and praise God, because he preserved them from actual sin and hell, and adorned them with so many gifts of nature, such that they will be able to contemplate created things, and especially the excellence of their, their own souls, as well as that of the angels, and thence to admire and to glorify the Creator. Otherwise, they would remain idle for all eternity. In other words, this is how they will spend eternity. Nor is it to be believed that God wants so many millions of souls to be forever in, in idleness, as though their existence forever in purgatory would be kind of a wasting a waste of their souls. And on the earth, therefore, in vain, as it were. For if, as the doctors teach everywhere, or which Gabriel Vasquez cites and follows, these children, by the providence of God, will not feel grief at the loss of the kingdom of heaven, because they did not forfeit it through their own fault. Why would we not believe that in the general renewal of the whole earth they are to be likewise perfected in order, on the order of natural goods, so that they be able to know, love, and praise God, and therefore to lead a peaceful and joyful life. Lessius argues thus, and he supports these arguments with many points. And if these things are true, what place would be more apt for the little ones than on the earth? For from it they will be able to see and contemplate the sun, the heavens, the stars, the sea, and other created things, and from them to love and praise God. So this is how Cornelius Alapide treats this, referring to some of the other commentators of ages past, and even referring to some of the fathers. But when he, even when he ends here, I think he doesn't do justice to it, because he says they will be able to see and contemplate the sun, the heavens, the stars, the sea, and other created things, and from them to love and praise God. But the sun, the heavens, the stars, the sea, and other created things will have been recreated by God. This is the thing. This is the, the new heavens and the new earth that they will see. So not only will they have the perfections of, of nature, uh, their own nature, but they will have the perfections of the, the world around them, which, you know, you get the impression it will be like a new Garden of Eden, perhaps even surpassing the new Garden of Eden. So I, I found that very comforting. Um, 
You know, it's, it's impossible not to speak to mothers who have lost children before they could live to be born and baptized without feeling their grief. I mean, it, it is a true grief of loss there. But I, I reading this myself, and hopefully and reading it to them, uh, found it to be very comforting. The idea of, uh, if there's one thing very puzzling in divine revelation, it's this reference to a new heaven and a new earth. And here we're not talking about the heaven of eternity, because that does not change, right? We're talking about the new heavens, the uranoi, as it is in Greek, right? The uranoi, the new heavens and the new earth. And if that's where these unborn, uh, unborn and unbaptized babies are going to be resurrected to live and continually praising God, sort of like one enormous religious order on earth, you know, to be filled with that joy. Uh, I, I find that very comforting, very reassuring. So, uh, so it's, it's clear it's not just my idea, right? And there are other greater minds, far greater minds and souls who have seen this to be the, uh, the destination and therefore the destiny of those, of those innocents, right? Right. That is very comforting, Father. So, Thank you. Anyway, Tom, uh, now you are a victim <laughs> of my uh, loquacity, right? <laughs> Father, thanks for being here tonight. Appreciate your time. Appreciate everything that you do. Uh, Thank, thank you. you, Tom. Yep. God bless you all. Yep. Thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.